Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, James chapter 1 is where we're going to base our study out of today. And I want to start off with um, some, a quiz. I want to start off with a quiz with some questions. So I'm going to ask these questions, and then you'll see your, your options are up here on the screen. And if you think you know the answer, raise your hand and, and let me know, okay? All right, so here's, here's the first question. Which Bible figure is most closely associated with leading the exodus from Egypt? Moses. Moses. Good job. We got number one. You just stole it from him. You just you took the glory. <laughs> That's it. Next question. Which figure is most closely associated with killing an enemy with a stone? David. David. Good job. Hey, we're two for two, buddy. We got to share the answers, right? We got to share the answers. Third. Who is most closely associated with willingness to sacrifice his son to obey God? I'll give this one to Jonah. Abraham. Abraham. Boy, we're three for three. We're doing a good job right now. Next question. Who is most closely associated with saving the Jews from murder by appealing to the king? Marilyn, do you know this one? Michael. I'm going to let Michael answer this one. Queen. Esther. The queen. Esther. (laughs) Man, good job. We're 100% so far. All right. Which one of these is not in the Ten Commandments? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. No adultery, no stealing, keep the Sabbath holy. Kai will finally go. Hey, that's right. The, what, what, we, what we've titled the golden rule. That is not in the Ten Commandments. All right. Who delivered the Sermon on the Mount? I wonder if anybody can get this one. I'm going to go back to Joseph. All right, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Very good job. Okay, last question. Last question. Kai's already got his hand up. So, so disqualified. Where did Jesus live during his childhood and young adulthood? Now, I'm just going to count to three and we can all answer, okay? One, two, three. Nazareth, all right. Everybody said Nazareth. Good job. Except for me. Except for Marilyn. Okay, so these questions were from a survey that was that was done by the Pew Research Center back in 2019. And its goal in the survey was to survey the general knowledge of its participants about religion in the public life, is the way that they put it. And these were some of the questions that they asked. So let's look at the results of the survey here. Now, I'm going to walk over here. And we're really just going to look at... Oh, it doesn't work. Okay. We're just going to look at people who self-identify as Christian and Jewish and atheist. Okay? We're not going to do a whole thing on here, but I think it's interesting. So, so those who answered about the golden rule, look. Christians only got that answer 64% of the time. Jewish, the Jews beat us out because they know their Ten Commandments, so they got 70%. The atheists were at 61%. 
Moses led Exodus into Egypt. Christians got that one 82% of the time. Jews, 93%. And look, the atheists beat the Christians. 89% of atheists knew that answer. David killed enemy with a stone. Uh, Christians, 82. Jews, 79. So we beat the Jews on that one. But look, the atheists beat both of us out. Isn't that interesting? At 84%. Abraham willing to sacrifice his son. Christians got that right, 74%. The Jews, 75. And the atheists, 72 Look at this one here. Esther saved Jews from murder. Only 33% of Christians got that one right. The Jewish doubled us up at 66%, and the atheists had no idea, 21%. So that, that was one that confused the atheists and the Christians, apparently. Nazareth being the home of Jesus, only 59% of Christians knew that. Jews tied us, 59%. And look at this. Atheists beat us out. 63% of, of atheists knew that Nazareth was the home of Jesus. Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Only 60% of Christians knew that. Only 44% of of Jews and and 48% of atheists. So you can see there this this kind of spread out nature of of, you would think that the Christians would be much higher on the list. Some of them, the Jews, much higher. But then it looks like the atheists had pretty good knowledge of biblical religion, right? So in, in 2010, they did this same survey. But they had a few of the questions different, and I looked at those as well. And one of the questions that they included in 2010 that they didn't include in 2019 was, what are the first four books of the New Testament? You guys know that answer? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Guess, guess how many, how, what the percentage of Christians that knew that answer? Not a lot. 50%. Only 50% knew that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the first four books of the New Testament. So that's crazy, right? So I want to focus our thoughts today on James uh, chapter 1, verses 20, verse, I'm sorry, verse 21, which talks about the importance of receiving with meekness the implanted word. And I want to share with you the importance of getting beyond an academic appreciation of what the Bible says. When I asked you, when I asked you guys those questions from the survey, we were gaining an understanding of your academic understanding of the Bible. You guys were 100% on those questions, which I'm very thankful to hear. Um, And we need to understand the distinction between taking an academic approach to what the Bible says and truly coming to an understanding of what the transformative power of the Word of God is. James in chapter 1, he talks a lot about the difference between real religion and just sort of playing church. My kids, when they were were smaller or about Maryland's age, they would play church. Um, They might have gotten some crackers and juice, right, from the refrigerator and had the Lord's Supper together. Jonah, he used to set up a lectern made out of a box in his room, and he would preach mightily the Word of God from, from 1 John. He would preach to Michael, who was sitting there in rapt attention. And his name was Matthew. And, 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 oh, okay. And Jonah would, we'd hear him say, First John and joy and lots of stuff. Uh, Marilyn and the boys, they always used to baptize each other in the bathtub, and which, yeah. which made, I didn't do that yeah. Three. Which, <laughs> yeah, I was an island, take it off. 
<laughs> yeah. And it always made us wonder if, if you guys were drowning each other rather than just baptizing. <laughs> so they would, they would, this is playing church, right? And a lot of people who claim Christianity today are playing church, right? Uh, in, in chapter one, James points out the difference between real religion and playing church. He talks about the fact that when we have real faith, we're not going to doubt. We're going to be single-minded. We're going to ask of God and have faith that he will give us those things. We're going to endure temptation, and we're not going to blame God for our temptation. We're going to understand where temptation comes from. We're not just going to hear the word. We're going to do the word. We're going to put it into practice in our everyday lives. We're going to help the unfortunate in whatever way that we can. And these are just a few of the distinctions in chapter one that James makes uh, about real religion, as he puts it, versus plain church. And this goes far beyond just the academic study of the Bible and really gets to the point of the transformative power of the Word of God. All right, so James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And the trajectory of this verse is receiving with meekness the implanted Word. So what's the connection between that and putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness? The answer is that our sinful habits become an obstacle to not only knowing the Bible academically, as we've seen, but having the Bible truly transform our lives in a way that is noticeable by others. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is looking into the future where he knows that there will be influencers that will try and draw people away from the church. And he talks about some of their sinful habits. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 2, it says, For people will be lovers of self-lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They appear to be godly, but they deny its power. And then in verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It is possible, as we've seen, to know a whole lot about the Bible, but to understand very little about the Word of God. I can know that the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I can know that David was a great king of Israel. I could even, I could memorize all of the judges uh, and, and I could recite them. But that, if that's as far as I get, then I'm, I'm never going to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And there's a difference between knowing facts and really coming under the influence of those facts. If we, if we want to receive with meekness the implanted word, we need to rid ourselves of filthy and sinful habits and be influenced by this truthful knowledge. Our sinful habits are an obstacle to that. If I'm studying the Bible and, and I've got sinful habits that I'm refusing to come to grips with, then that's going to color my perspective on what I'm reading and what I'm studying. I'm going to come to the Bible with preconceived ideas that are almost always wrong. In Isaiah 
chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the power of rationalizing our sins. And we are blindly involved in in this self-deception. When sinful habits are coloring our perspective on what the Bible teaches, we're not going to receive with meekness the implanted word. Back to James chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Meekness is trusting what God says is true and being fully dependent upon what he tells us. Is that good enough, Dad? Who's just now teaching these lessons on meekness? Some may say that meekness is just a gentleness and someone who is quiet as a mouse. And I don't agree with that definition. Violent and loud soldiers can be very meek because they choose to fully trust what the Lord tells us in his word. They choose to be fully dependent on him while they do violent things that are the opposite of gentle, right? I used to be one of these violent soldiers, but I depended upon God. So was I meek, yes. Anyways, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, uh, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And, and I think that this is the perfect example of meekness. These loud, do you know children who are just, uh, yeah. I think children are loud and boisterous and energetic and playful, right? These are children who fully trust in Jesus. They are meek. And this is what we need to be like, fully dependent upon him so that we can truly receive the implanted word. So we can be loud and we can be boisterous and we can be energetic and playful and fun and violent soldiers. And as long as we are fully dependent upon trusting in our Lord, then we are meek. So what does it mean to receive then the implanted word? Notice that it's not just receiving the word. James wants to make sure that we understand that this seed needs to implant. It needs to send down roots. We're learning about that as we garden, right? It needs to send down roots. It needs to grab a hold of us to the very core of our being. This isn't just academic knowledge of the Bible anymore. This is experiencing the transforming power of the Word of God. So in school, we learn about our ABCs, and eventually we come to multiplication tables, and then eventually maybe poetry, and then... Uh, for us, uh, cursive and algebra and calculus. But we learn those things from a very basic academic approach. It's just the accumulation of knowledge and, and learning facts. We can learn the Bible in the same way, and a lot of people do. They know the facts very well, as we saw, right? We saw the statistics of, of, of how many facts the atheists knew in that survey. But facts won't do anything for us if it doesn't change us. If we don't go further than the facts, then we'll never experience the transformative power of the Word of God. This is the Word that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It is the Word which has been God-breathed, and is profitable for reproof, for doctrine, for correction, for instruction, for in righteousness, which equips us unto every good work.
In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is writing a letter to a group of churches that are undergoing an apostate influence. The Judaizing heresy, as, as some call it, which was a group who were trying to get the Galatian Christians to fall back on the old law again. In Galatians chapter 2 here in verse 20, Paul writes to them, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the faith I and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we read that, we need to think, we need to think there's something there that I need to do. I need to crucify myself. I need to take whatever my will is, whatever my desires are, whatever my programmed life was, and I need to put all of that aside and make it subservient to what Jesus would have me to do. The life that I now live, I need to emulate the life of Christ. So we have that, and at this point, we turn to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read the story of Jesus, the things that he said and taught and what he did. Uh, I read about his love and forgiveness and compassion. That's the transformative power of the Word of God. We've got to get to the point where we're not just hearing the word, but we're also understanding it so that it can bear fruit. So how do we do that? Uh, So let's talk about some habits that my family and, and other families have developed over the last several years that have helped us come to an understanding of what God's word teaches and has helped us experience the transformative power of the Word of God. Number one, I believe it begins with prayer in every setting. When when we're at home and we're studying in our private devotions, begin with prayer. Acknowledge that this is God's Word that we are opening and that we are opening ourselves up to it. Ask God to enlighten us as to the truths that are contained in that passage that we're reading. In Ephesians 1, Paul is talking about about his prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. He says one of the things that he prays for them is that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul is talking about having a life where we experience that our eyes are truly opened to what the Bible has to say. It's God's word that we're studying, so it's very important to begin with prayer. Uh, Number two, I think, was we just need to read the Bible. That might be, that might have been number one, but I was rushing to write this lesson this morning. So we need to read the Bible. We, need, we, we don't just need to read it to learn some facts, though, but we need to read it for comprehension. Um, some people approach the Bible from the standpoint that it's really too hard to understand. Um, but all we really need to do is exercise the same rules of comprehension that we would apply in reading anything, a book of fiction or a book of nonfiction or another book of nonfiction. We're reading that and we're, we're trying to comprehend what the author has written as we read anything, right? And that's exactly how we need to approach the Bible. That's how God has spoken to us 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 11, says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Paul utilizes this same passage again in Romans chapter 10 when he is talking about the unbelieving Jewish people. These, uh, these passages remind us that we don't need somebody to go up to heaven to figure this out for us. God's word is right there for us. All we have to do is pick it up, pray for understanding, and start reading. Um, number three, we need to be listening as we read it. We need to have our ears open to what it's saying. It is too easy to bring preconceived ideas into, into what we're studying. Um, don't do that. And that's one thing that we've been trying to do here. So don't bring preconceived ideas into our studies, right? Have you ever had the experience where you'll be talking with someone and they interrupt you mid-sentence and they say something like, oh yeah, I know, I know what you're talking or I know what you're saying. And then they try to articulate what it is that they think you're saying, and it becomes abundantly clear that they have no idea what you're actually saying. Um, some people approach the Bible this way. They'll take what they think they know what, uh, what they know about the Bible, and, and they never actually read or listen to what it's saying. We need to listen to what the Word of God says. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Okay. Number four, I think, is try memorizing some scriptures. Um, start small. We, we do this all the time, right? You boys are so good at this. Encourage me. And your memorization skills just blow my mind, my very feeble mind at this point. But try to start small and, and then get to some longer ones. And this habit will help us to meditate on the scripture and implant it into our hearts in a more permanent way, right? And then I think number five is that we need to correctly handle the word of God. In 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I like the way the New King James puts that, rightly dividing the word of truth. This involves understanding the context the author is writing in, making sure that we understand the perspective of the author. Why was he writing it, maybe? Under what circumstance was he writing this? Who was he writing it to? Understanding the circumstance of the people who received it. Uh we may not find ourselves in the same circumstances as the people who originally received it, but we have to have an understanding of that so that we can apply it to ourselves today. It helps for sure. What was the original intent of the things the author was writing about? Okay, now, putting all this together brings us to the last phrase in our original verse here, James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Remember those statistics we, we looked at? How some of the percentages were, they were really low uh, for people who should have known those basic facts. Do you think those percentages would be the way they are if people really believed that this book, this Bible was able to save our souls? Our souls are us. Our soul is not something that we have. Our soul is who we are. If people were convinced of that, then 
then they would take an understanding of God's word a little bit more seriously. So what is the benefit of receiving the implanted word? It is able to save your soul and the souls of everyone else you present the gospel to. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, starting in verse 14, Paul tells Timothy here, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy might have been tempted as a young preacher to think, I know all that. I've, I've, I've heard all this since I was a kid, right? And Paul says, continue in them. These are holy scriptures and they are able to make you wise for salvation. We've got to get to the point where we're taking Bible study more seriously because our soul is absolutely dependent upon it. We need to expend the effort and we need to take the time. The education that we receive from the scriptures is for eternity. Am I spending enough time in studying God's word? And when I study God's word, am I really digging into it? And more importantly, is it digging into me so that it is implanted? So the focus of, of my lesson this morning has not been on, or has, I'm sorry, it, the focus has been on learning the Bible in a transformative way and not just in an academic, factual way. And I want to I also state, that something that I think um, is important is that I believe that we can get so wrapped up in discussing and debating extra-biblical documentation that we can very quickly overcomplicate the Scripture and lose focus on the message of the Gospel very quickly. So, one of my favorite authors and speakers uh, more recently is Doug Wilson. Doug is affiliated with the Presbyterian community and has an excellent grasp on both uh, world history and biblical history and, and the knowledge in, the, in, those, in those areas. And, and while I fervently disagree with some of what he believes in, I really like a lot of what he says. And I think the reason is that he has been shunned by a large part of the Presbyterian community because of his stance on simply looking at what the Bible has to say and not just on denominational credos or history, or confessions, like the Westminster Confession. And last week, I was, uh, I was listening to a conference where Doug was defending his, his side, uh, where the Presbyterian Church had called him a heretic on two specific subjects, or sacraments, as they call them. And these topics were baptism and the Lord's Supper. And his heresy, as far as I could gather, was that he was questioning the, the denominational documentation and whether or not some of it made sense. He defended his position for 58 minutes with extraordinary knowledge of, of history, denominational credos, and confessions of the Reformed era of faith. In 58 minutes of his defense of his biblical beliefs, guess what he never once did? He never referenced the Bible except for one single reference in the middle of his defense. And he didn't even say it was from the Bible, but this is a small, small portion of his defense. And I'm just going to read this, even if you can't see it. It says, this is, this is his words. 
I think a great deal of confusion has been caused by people who think that they are holding to the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and so forth, when they've, in effect, abandoned it. And, of course, the defense of this doctrine is not a defense that can proceed from the Confessions. The defense of this has to be done by an exegesis from the Scriptures. What does the Bible say? And I'm like, oh, maybe Doug's been listening to our house church. What does the Bible say, he says? The Westminster Confession says all controversies of religion are to be settled by an appeal to the scriptures, not by an appeal to the confessions themselves, because the counsels and actions of the church are fully capable of error. So, we can cheerfully admit that it's possible that they are in error at this point, but if they are in error at this point, then you need to reject it honestly and say, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I do believe that this is what the Bible teaches. I believe that we have been trained not to see the Bible saying these things because we are trained to automatically translate when we run into a scriptural fit phrase. I'll give you one simple example back on baptism. The Nicene Creed speaks that we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins and our evangelical hackles go up. Baptism for the remission of sins. Well, that sounds Catholic. How do you defend that phrase? One baptism for the remission of sins. Well, I have a question for you. How do you defend that phrase when Peter uses it in Acts? Baptism for the remission of sins. The Nicene Creed got it from the Bible. How do you understand those words in the book of Acts? And then we'll do a little dog and pony show. So I find it interesting that this very learned man was being charged with heresy simply because he wanted to see what the Bible had to say instead of the creeds and confessions written by men. And I don't and don't get wrapped up in thinking that this is an attack on denominationalism or big church mentality, which I admittedly have zero love or patience for. But the reason that I bring this up is because we get so ensconced in the complexities of extra-biblical debate and in the temptation to prove ourselves academically that we can very easily forget to simply open our Bibles and see what it says and believe it. We spend an inordinate amount of time wasting away in these debates when all we need to do is disciple, baptize, and teach people the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get so entranced by academia, that we can just as easily lose our souls through it as someone who just sets their Bible down and never reads it. Let me say that again. I'm going to say this again because I think this is important. We can get so entranced by academia that we can just as easily lose our our souls through academia as someone who just sets their Bible down and never reads it again. Satan is a wily one. And he will use everything to get us to simply not open our Bibles and listen to the Word of God. Those are the five things I went over, but I I should be clear. There is nothing wrong with reading and learning from teachings and people who are not in the Bible. But if we don't know our Bible first, we can very, very easily lose our souls in the lies being told by people who simply don't know the Bible for themselves. But they come across as confident and knowledgeable. Know the Bible first so that you can place garbage in the garbage pile and truth in the truth pile and move on. The Bible will transform us because it is the very word of God. Don't be tempted to lose focus on him because we want to learn everything around us as well. Will you pray with me? Father God, you, you, have, you have given us this word that is so amazing and, and I just have I just want to thank you for the the time um, and energy you gave me this week to to look into the study and 
and to, to further, uh, to further give myself a foundation that, man, this Bible is just all, all that I need to, to know, to go to, to figure out everything that I need to, uh, that everything that I need while I'm here on this earth, just passing through, uh, you know, working, working hard to get to heaven with you so that I can continue to learn as, as we're there for eternity with you. And, and, and what a joyful thing that that will be. Thank you again for this time today in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.